Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Buying a home can feel like navigating uncharted waters. Redfin agents can help. They'll answer your questions with honest advice so you know exactly what you're getting into. They'll also help you tour as many homes as you want and show you what it takes to make a winning offer. With a Redfin agent on your side, you can sail straight to your dream home. Local expertise from Redfin. That's real estate done right. Tour subject to property and agent availability. Virginia Office Falls Church, VA. 844-759-7732. My name is Dave Hanratty and there will be no popcorn. Welcome to episode 20 of the No Popcorn Film and Music Podcast, of course, associated with your beloved No Encore Podcast. It's been about, I want to say, about two months, perhaps, or there, thereabouts, since we did one of these. Uh, life gets in the way. I won't bore you with details, but, you know, these things happen. But uh, we are hoping to get back into a bit of a good schedule now and maybe re- block record a few episodes or something so it's not so long. But we'll start with this one, which we teased before. Which, of course, centers around two films, uh, much like last time. This time it's 24-Hour Party People and Control, both of which tell the story of the likes of Tony Wilson, Ian Curtis, Joy Division, New Order, The Happy Mondays, the whole Manchester slash Madchester scene of the 70s and 80s, and the accounts thereof. So one is kind of primarily focused on Tony Wilson and is a bit more exuberant, uh, lighthearted to a degree, certainly some gallows humour and that kind of stuff, whereas the other one, Control, is a very serious drama centering around the final days, I guess the rise and the final days of Ian Curtis, frontman of Joy Division, who passed away tragically at the age of 23. Just as a quick thing at the very start of this, I should know for anyone listening, just in case, um, we will obviously be getting into the details of Ian Curtis's passing, which of course involves suicide and, you know, a content warning, I guess, for that kind of stuff, because while we're not going to get into anything kind of grisly, 
obviously you're too forensic. It is a subject matter that can't be not talked about when you discuss this thing. So um, I'm joined, of course, on location by Norma Howard. Hello, how are we? On location, yeah, in my house. In your house, yeah. It's like, it's, uh, we're, we're still not back in the studio. Like, the Headstuff studios are open, but I've yet to go back into them, so I'm still kind of keeping it in the in the locality. And also with us, of course, is David Higgins. Good to be back with you both, potting from a social distance. Yeah, uh, for anyone who's concerned, we, we are spaced out around this big table, um, and microphone leads accordingly and everything, so yeah, it's weird, but it's it's okay. It's nice to be uh, not on a fucking Zoom call again, for I think for the first time in forever, so please... I think uh, Sonic Architect Adam is going to be happy that my recording won't be into my iPhone. <laughs> covered with a sock. <laughs> <laughs> covered covered with a, yeah, a, a makeshift pop shield. It's still very appreciated that you made the pop shield and that you went for it. I'm using like the top mic on this Zoom recorder. So if anything is off audio fidelity wise, uh, I guess just, you know, hopefully we'll, you know, bear with us and we'll we'll, we'll iron it out by the time we do our next couple of films. But uh, for now, as we say, we'll be launching into these ones quite soon. Um, given that we still live in a state of partial lockdown, um, I've been burning through lots of movies. I know we all have. I won't bother boring everyone with the de- details of all the ones I have been. Uh, if you go onto the Letterboxd website, and look up no underscore encore you can find me and find what i have been watching but i guess as a sample flavoring of of things i've watched before i came over here today i finally plucked up the courage to rewatch watch villeneuve's 2013 um spider-based frightmare spider-based <laughs> frightmare the worst description of a film ever enemy starring Spider-based. starring jake gyllenhaal uh you haven't seen it norm is this correct no we were uh we were chatting about it a very long time ago and uh, you were like it's not actually about spiders and I was like sounds like I don't want to watch it still so maybe maybe at some stage I'll pluck up the courage but uh, I'm a huge uh-huh. huge arachnophobe for anyone who doesn't know what the film is about I, the spider thing is a motif um, it's about a guy who discovers a he discovers that he has a doppelganger basically and sets out to see what all that means um, it's a 90 minute movie which is rare and uh, I know you're very much on the train of this is Denis Villeneuve's best movie, aren't you, Higgs? Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. I haven't watched it in a while now, but I, I watched it definitely like two or three times over a two or three year period. And yeah, it's just it's the one that sticks with me the most. I find it like incredibly intoxicating. It is really disturbing. Um, I've got a thing for doppelganger movies. <laughs> Everyone has their their their, their subgenres. Um, I think it's when it, I think it's when like Gyllenhaal started really getting weird because it, they filmed it, but I think it came out after Prisoners, but they'd filmed it before and it was kind of like trying to find someone who would release something so strange. Um, I think, yeah, it's one of Gyllenhaal's best performances. Um, and yeah, just like incredibly haunting visuals. Like, I mean, there's the, the final shot, but even before that, like there's just so many, uncomfortable things in it and um, that yeah just really really sticks on your brain after it's also got this really sickly jaundice tone that runs throughout the movie like everything's fucking yellow or like steeped within it very claustrophobic um yeah the final shot of the film not to spoil it but like the first time i it's probably the scariest ending i think it's up there as one of the scariest endings in cinema history along with like blair witch project and that kind of stuff which still freaks me out to this day um the last shot, the last kind of moment of enemy, the first time I ever saw it, I was in my parents' house. So this is like 2014 or whatever. I don't know. Um, cause I, I think I, I may have 
legally watch the film. I don't know why I'm editing myself here. <laughs> it, it was. It didn't get a cinema release, did it? it? it no, it, it eventually did. I don't really even remember. I don't even remember hearing about it this was, film. It got a US release maybe in late 2013, but didn't make it to Ireland till like the start of 2015. So oh, there wow. were versions of it doing the rounds and I, on I'm the a, internet. I'm an impatient man. And I remember watching it quite late at night. And then that final thing happens. And I'm not even kidding. Like my back tried to scale the chair like i just like i felt my body like just just fucking just recoil i think is the word and i just i I literally just like before i knew what was happening i was physically moving in the other direction and just like (laughs) so yeah and then today uh, when that scene was approaching, I was like looking at the floor, like one eye on the screen. And then eventually I, re- I rewound it and I watched it in full just to make sure I put myself through the, I faced my fears. To make sure you remembered it in just to kind of, it's not, it. it didn't freak me out as much this time because I knew it was fucking coming. But like, yeah, it's a really good film. Check it out. Not a really good film. Uh, the Fan, Tony Scott, Robert De Niro, Wesley Snipes about an obsessed baseball fan. Robert De Niro, this is from 1996. I watched it the night before. I'm just going through a random kind of binge of movies at the moment. Uh, I still miss Tony Scott despite this film being completely all over the place. It might be one of Robert De Niro's worst performances ever. His character is as big a scumbag as he has ever played. It's one of the scuzziest, most disgraceful characters ever. Starts off with like a lot of rhythm and it's like, it's a genre thriller and I love that kind of stuff. I love Tony Scott movies. I love nine movies but like jesus it's 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 not a good movie it's it's really fucking nasty and also there's this weird thing going on lately where i watched fallen recently the denzel washington movie and like between fallen the fan the devil's advocate interview with the vampire what contract did the rolling stone sign to have sympathy for the devil or paint it black in everything in the 90s and they i mean those tracks had already been basically immortalized in scorsese and then like paint it black at the end of Metal Jack, but yeah, I guess they're just like if you call them, they will license. Uh, yeah, I guess also burning through some other stuff. I saw uh, Art House, struggling Art House picture, Margaret, not Margaret, it is called Margaret, apparently. Okay, this is a Kenneth Lonergan film that was made in 2005 but didn't see the light of day until 2011, starring Anna Paquin in the lead role. And it's basically about a 17 year old, kind of rich New York student, uh, inadvertently helps cause a major accident. Uh, which is really fucking graphic when it happens. And the fallout from that, it's a very art house movie. There's an extended cut of it available. So it's two and a half hours in, in, in like in its current form. And there's an extended cut that takes to like 190 minutes, which I haven't seen. And everyone's like, that's the better version. And it's like, oh, okay. But it's really good. It's a really good drama. She's excellent in it. And it's worth checking out as a curio. I think it just got held up for so long for, there was like a lot of, I think Karen Longan couldn't film it, couldn't finish it. And there was tons of like, lawsuits and all, all kinds of stuff happening and you get this moment in the film where they refer to the current president which is meant to be george bush but by the time it came out it was obama so there's all this kind of weird crossover but it's it's certainly worth seeing um apart from that i watched a film that i know you're a big fan of enough said it's james gandolfini's final film role uh a charming rom-com opposite julie louis dreyfus 90 minutes as well uh also stars eve hewson of oh. of bono yeah. fame <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's it's very charming. It's very it feels very TV movie in a good way. Being made by Bono. <laughs> constructed by Bono. Um, it's it, it's a really charming movie. It did kind of lose me a bit towards the end, where it all of a sudden everyone just starts taking real fucking punches towards uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus's character. Like you know, it's your classic conflict situation, but there's almost too much of it. Won me back by the end. It's a really nice movie, and I will say. Fuck, I like I'm not the biggest Sopranos guy in the world. Obviously James Gandolfini was a huge talent, but it's really nice to see him in a role like this where he's just really warm and kind of, you know, 
cuddly, I guess. Yeah, like... Um, He's very I, cuddly. It was one of the, my favorite films of the year came out, and I, I completely agree with that sentiment that for it to be his last movie, like, I, I, I very much enjoy his performance and say, like, killing them softly, but, like, you don't want that to be the last time you see James Gandolfini, and, like, as a as a kind of a, a swan song, as a goodbye, it's such a... It's such a charming performance. Um, he's really funny in it. I don't think he kind of... You kind of haven't got to see his funny side outside of like, you know, maybe like very slapstick and in, in, in other things. So, uh, yeah, I loved it. Um, I must revisit, actually, now that you mention it. Certainly worth a watch. I guess lastly on my list, um, The King of Staten Island, Pete Davidson movie, which I referenced on No Encore. I found it very charming as well. I was surprised. It's got all the Judd Apatow problems of it being roughly the same film he's made every time and it being two hours and 20 minutes long, but it worked for me and the needle drops are 10 out of 10. Two hours, 20 minutes. Two hours, 20. Yeah, it's a lot, but it didn't feel like it. Speaking of... uh, (laughs) Here we go. At the end of May, because it's been that long since an episode came out, I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for the fifth time. I've now seen it five times. It just gets better and better and better, guys. I I don't know what else I can say. How many hours of that is your life? Oh, that's so, a like, good question. So, like, if it's about a three-hour film? It's about 15 hours, it's yeah. 15 hours. There, thereabouts. Oh, <laughs> Can I ask you what you're going to be doing for your paper anniversary with it in a, in a month or so? <laughs> uh, it depends, you know, like, I mean... Do night, bring night, yeah. <laughs> Should I get you a car? <laughs> night, night on the town for, like, a, an hour and a half in some restaurants that will have us, I suppose. Uh, Norma, what have you been watching? Um, so, I got onto season two of Succession. I had previously watched season one, and it was even better than season one. It's so, so, so good. The, uh, like, I didn't think their lives could become more rich and outrageous, but they do. Um, the end of the season culminates on, like, potentially the biggest private yacht I've ever seen on anything. Um, there was a point where the storyline where it kind of seemed like it was rolling along in a similar fashion to season one. And I was like, they're really going to have to, like, pull something out of the bag here. They're going to have to really kick us back. And they do. And it was absolutely brilliant. And I'm only massively furious that, uh, so they were about to go into production of season three and then coronavirus happened. So it's been stalled. I don't know when season three will be filmed. And I'm very upset about it. (laughs) It's the biggest casualty um, of TV for me. I'm just like, fuck. Yeah. Like it. Damn it. (laughs) And because it's a, it's a huge, massive scale production and it's and it's filmed on these enormous um enormous sets that contain so many people that uh i hope i hope it'll go back into production soon i don't want to give away too much about it or the storylines or what goes on i would just think just watch it and get angry and then love every last bit of it. i think what you're saying about the second season as well uh when you watch the first season um like the, the opulence of them is is on display because you know I think within the first episode of the f- first season like they're taking like the the was it no it's a private chopper it's not even blades um, so oh like, yeah you know, to the they're doing that to thing. go somewhere but then a lot of it is kind of like it's in um, it's in it's in the family home or it's in the the main place of work and it kind of reminds me when you see the second season is like remember those seasons of Game of Thrones you're like there's an awful lot of like not a lot happening here. But you know that they're like saving the money for like the second last episode. The big stuff. And, and season two of Succession, like that, it's like everything is on location. Like you said, like, yeah, they go, like, they go we're going to go to Hungary. We're going to go to Scotland. Um, um, and not just it like. It really, really <laughs> is like flexing the financial muscle of like how successful the show became. 
and kind of just really showing them off. Just like for reference with that as well, like in season two, it is how about the business is struggling to find an investor. You could sell that yacht for a couple of mil. Just sell it. <laughs> status symbol. It's a status symbol. I know, symbol. but I was just like, how is it they can be in like so much debt and yet it's like, let's fly here. Let's do this. Let's, here's a book of the 20 homes that you own. They're all ours. Um, and then after our last recording of um, our double bill, I went back and I watched the other film from 2007. There were only three of them, yeah. <laughs> Which was, With apologies no, to Zodiac. <laughs> Uh, no country for old men and I can confirm it's still very very good um I still weigh up in my mind whether I think there will be blood is better it's, I think it might be it's no contest guys it's, it's, there will be blood thank you, it's thank no you country for old men <laughs> there will be blood <laughs> every day of the week um, and then to round up the things I've been watching um there was a lot of talk about uh Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You so I was going to start watching that and then a few people were like, oh, you should definitely go back and watch Chewing Gum and just kind of like get into her kind of vibe. And I was like, why are they similar? And they were like, oh, they're not similar at all. But Chewing Gum is like a nice, like fluffier version of a thing to sort of ease you into it. And then uh, I heard I May Destroy You is excellent, just very, very dark. So I'm going to watch a bit of Chewing Gum and then that'll be my next big thing to get around to. As for you, Mr. David Higgins. Um, well, I feel I'd be remiss if I didn't check in with the dogs of Berlin. I know <laughs> I talked about it last time. I finished it off. I'll just, I'll just briefly say it's one of the worst shows I've ever seen. Um, it has the idea that it is the wire. Like it even, the, 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 the season ends with a, with like a big montage with all the characters, the way like every season of the wire ended. It ends to Moby's The Dogs. Um, and yeah, it's actually insane. Like in the finale, it's just like, it goes full Scarface. It starts with like two quotes where it's like one from a philosopher about like anger and then the other one from like Yoda. And I was like, oh God, fuck this show. So anyway, <laughs> I did watch a good German show. I'm starting to watch the new season of Dark, which is absolutely oh, immense. Heard, yeah. It's very um, I'm very much Homer Simpson watching Twin Peaks, uh, when I'm watching it. Like I, I don't really know what's happening because there's six six timelines and and alternate dimensions. Like, yeah, so is it, an, a, it it's, like a supernatural? A, a proper, yeah, full sci-fi. Like it really um, goes full at that. But the thing that kind of grounds it is that it's like it's such a good drama. It like it cares about its characters so much. Um, it really invests in them, so you're invested in them because you see a lot of them um, as children, as adults, as old people. Um, yeah, just like a really bold show. And it's, you know, it could end up being a mess by the end, but I don't think it will just from sheer virtue of uh, the performances and how rounded the characters are, even considering that their situations are absolutely fantastic. I started to watch the first like two minutes of the first episode. And then I was like, ah, look, I better finish the Snowpiercer TV show first, which <laughs> I'm finishing out of sake of just pure completionism at this stage. Uh, season one isn't even fully out yet, but it's coming out week by week on Netflix. It's just not very good. It's just very kind of bog standard. Um, I don't know if it's how it's shot or who's directing it, but there's something very cheap looking about it. Like money has clearly been spent, but it just doesn't feel ever like you're on that fucking train with them. And it's just very like 
of the week. No one feels really convincing. It doesn't like I like the I like the film. I don't think the film's a masterpiece, but I like the film. I think it's pretty good. Uh, the TV show is a waste of time. Like I wouldn't. It's been renewed for season two, and I'm like, okay, why? Can I make a sneaky confession. I actually don't know if you know this. I've never seen The Wire. Oh no. Got to shut the podcast off. This is like is, <laughs> whenever people lockdown? bring up the wire, and then so this is the thing. There was like about a month ago, um, Dahi like sat me down and was like, "I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm going to rewatch the wire from the very beginning by myself. You're <laughs> with me or you're against me." <laughs> and it was like that was it. It was just like at some point the wire is going to be watched. So I will watch the wire. But there's so many times I've been in conversations where people are like blah 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 the wire, and I've just like nodded along because <laughs> I'm so just like, Have you managed to avoid like, like spoilers, characters? I know nothing about it. Amazing. Okay. Absolutely nothing other than the actors that are in it. Because sometimes when people talk about things and you have no context for it, even if they reveal storylines, you're like, I out of context that mean it means nothing. So I don't. I know it's set in Baltimore. It is, yeah. And that's it. There was a, a guy I know who used to, he was chatting to, he's an actor and he was chatting to another actor and that other actor was like, oh, I've never seen The Wire. And he was like, you shouldn't allow to be an actor if you haven't seen The Fucking Wire. It does, so it does draw the, at that level of like, pretension. It's from, like, it's it, a scary thing it does, to be like, on the side of, I've never seen The Wire. <laughs> I feel like when I talk about The Wire, it must be how I think everyone else like I think of everyone else when they talk about The Sopranos because I think The Sopranos is fine but I just never thought it was that great um, and it's like the most taboo subject ever it's like the fucking Beatles you're just not allowed to say it but The Wire I honestly for all the fucking bollocks all the lads in smoking areas whatever it is genuinely amazing like it really is it just is. seems like a colossal <laughs> like, task because there's also a lot of it eh, it's five seasons and it's like 13 episodes per season until you get to the last one then it's 10 episodes per season mm-hmm. on, on that one so like, it, like but then again like, there, you wouldn't I, 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 was I about, just can't go on being a wire As I was say that you, you wouldn't binge it, but I'm sure the people who have, I would find it, like, you'd watch, like, an episode at a time, maybe. It yeah. does, the big... What are they, an hour? An hour, yeah. And, and they're just heavy, like, and, like, there was the, the whole big pretentious thing that David Simon was like, it's 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 a 60-hour novel. And it's like, well, it kind of fucking is. Where are you at on it? You're a fan, right? Oh, I absolutely love it. I, I watched all of the first time around, I watched all the season five in one day. And now you can be an actor. <laughs> yeah. That's how it works, apparently. I think so, yeah. <laughs> in one day. Yeah, because I, I, oh, like, oh, Jesus, I'm about to sound like the kind of person who was like, I liked Arcade Fire, <laughs> you know, before Funeral <laughs> came out. But um, years ago, my, my friend's mother gave me The Wire on, like, Region 1 DVD before it had been on, I guess, but before it was on, like, did it was on TG4, and I think it was on BBC2 for a while. But when did it begin again? Like 2000? So it started in like 2001, and then it kind of it finished in 2008. I think it, it hit its peak after it actually finished completely here, certainly, like in 2007, 2008. Maybe people were watching it, but anyway, um, I was an early, an early adopter of the wire, and I also like loved, um, George Pelicanus's books, um, and he was like one of the main writers from like the third season going onwards, or certainly maybe in the second season. Yeah, it's it's great. Oh. I, I I'm, I'm just I'm glad I, I got that off my chest. But I know I can't I can't go on acting as if I know what happens in the wire. Is there a wire? Uh, yeah, yeah, there's a wire. Yeah, there's a wire. <laughs> <laughs> You're in for a treat. Um, the wire is a motif, <laughs> <laughs> much like a spider. And, um, okay, before you jump into these movies, you got anything else of no takes? Um, yeah, just a couple of quick things to, to hit on. Uh, I watched, um, that Ben Affleck movie, The Way Back, where, you know, it's, 
you know, Ben Affleck plays a character who reflects the personal life of Ben Affleck. Like, I think he, he made this movie like a little bit after he um, got out of rehab. And basically, you know, it's it's a very simple sports movie. He's like a former high school star um, who never made it and is drinking himself to death. Like, th- this movie starts off with like, he's like working on a site and then he's like drinking a beer while driving home, having a shower while drinking. There's a scene where he actually drinks 24 beers. Is a uh, Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones in the No, no. <laughs> no needle drops, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, he takes over this like useless high school basketball team and then like he's like, oh, I'm going to turn you guys around. It's like so rote. It's incredibly saccharine. Why did you choose to watch it? Sports movie. Sports basketball movie, man. basketball. <laughs> like, I, I wasn't... I, was I wasn't. Like, I would read that description and be like, oh, Ben was, Affleck plays sad, divorcey... I was I was dad, laughing at how bad it was. Like, But then like when he gets the kids and he's like talking to his assistant coach and they're like talking about three-point percentages, I was like, okay, I think I've got, I could watch this film now. But uh, <laughs> yeah, much like his movie of last year, Triple Front... Triple Frontier. I'm under no illusions that it's a good film, but I really enjoyed it. He's uh, very sad, divorcee in that movie as well. He's yeah. like peak sad, divorcee, and it Spoiler, also has like yeah. an <laughs> it's just a bang of it all from like dramatic turn. We're talking Kenneth Lonergan insanely <laughs> dramatic uh, turn here. I also watched a, a movie called Ultras, keeping up with the sports movie theme. Uh, it's an Italian movie about ultras in Naples. Um, I kind of was like. Sucked in by the trailer, like it has a really good visual style. The visual style being uh, the Blaze Territory video. Like, keep talking. Some say <laughs> a bit slower. Some, some of the <laughs> some of the shots seem like they are wholesale lifted from it. Like, you oh, know, really? You know, the, you know the shot of the, where they're in like the the shisher bar, and it's like kind of the, the the cameras just kind of floating around them. They basically recreate that shot in the back of the truck with people smoking, going to like smash up some Lazio. And does fans. the video predate the film? Yeah, like I mean, it, it might just be a reference point, but. Um, there's some great things about it. Like it has this amazing, uh, like one take opening shot where you have like one of these old ultras kind of coming in on his bike and he's got like a, a cut off denim jacket and he's like walking up to like the harbor of Naples where there's this massive uh, group of people and there's like a small church and you can see all these like haggard ultras, uh, like a bride and groom come out and like they just like set up a flag and like light flares and like start like this insane football chant. So it's like it's got a good vibe about it. And then it just kind of turns into this story of like, oh, the new gang coming along, uh, trying to oust the old gang. Pretty standard. Looks good. Uh, has a kind of a fun soundtrack. And then lastly, um, with the with the with the pandemic, you know, sometimes I like you know, need to, to balance out the, the existential dread of that by being like, it could be worse. So like I've been reading books on climate change and then I was reading a book about the apocalypse, um, which was a funny book uh, called Notes on the Apocalypse. So I would recommend it. It takes more like a, a lighthearted look at people who are like prepping for the apocalypse or who are like trying to like colonize Mars or um, like your Peter Thiel's like buying parts of New Zealand. So the New Zealand part had me thinking about Ex Machina and I was like, Alex Garland is kind of the the man when it comes to apocalyptic movies so i went and kind of watched an unofficial trilogy i watched sunshine ex machina and i revisited annihilation uh sunshine great i still have the difficulties with pinbacker and where it goes and i know you love it but i'm four and a half stars four and a half yeah four and a half stars i kind of i kind of wonder with the three movies that alex Arnold made with danny boyle i find their third acts to be like they go completely off the rails and i'm like is that 
how it was or like did they just have some disagreement or did Danny Boyle Hang interpret on, sorry, things the, differently? The beach? It kind of goes off the rails. No, but what's the third one? Uh, 28 Days Later? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but particularly Sunshine, like I've I've made my piece with Pinbacker where it goes a bit event horizon and I, I kind of just want a bit more reflective gazing into What's your sun. favorite part of the movie? Mine is, of course, Canada. What do you see? <laughs> like, um, what can you see? Yeah, Canada? I mean, it's hard not to pick that because it also has a uh, G minor. Yeah. Um, Everything Cliff Curtis in that movie, I love. I think he's, I think he's the MVP of the movie in a way. Yeah, although I think Chris Evans is underrated. I think he's very good. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed a rewatch of Ex Machina. Um, it's kind of crazy that it's his directorial debut and like how assured and like strong visually it is like you'd imagine someone who was like a commercial director or like music video director to do something like that not necessarily like a novelist turned screenwriter turned director um yeah i really enjoyed it um and i like that it's not it's not charlie brooker like we must fear technology it's more like we must fear uh silicon valley libertarians (laughs) you know more than anything um and then lastly annihilation we watched it together when it when it came out, and uh, neither of us were wild on it. I like it a little bit more now, but I think still think it's a real bit of a mess. Like, it's very beautiful looking, and at times there's some like very solid set pieces. Although, like the set piece, I think the kind of people talk about it a lot doesn't in the house in the house. It's like, not that good. Like, that's basically like mixing the thing and Predator, which should be like you know put that directly in my vein, but it doesn't really work it's 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 a very interesting idea but maybe not realized um, you could say that the ending is that piece. i know that dahi had a huge effect on him he was like bowled over by the point i think he had to go for like a long drive or something much i get to go for a long drive after he finished the last of us part two and speaking real quick on the last of us part two by the way huge fucking disappointment uh also sorry uh, and we will jump into these movies now but sports movies real quick i watched remember the titans proving that i will watch literally anything that denzel washington has been in that's a film that has a hilariously disnified uh view on racism by the way it's just like yeah, it wasn't great was it and it's like yeah there's a bit, bit more to it than that yeah. <laughs> like and then does it have the is it the phil collins is on the soundtrack I don't know. There's, there's lots some of big songs. There's tons of them. Like it's it, there's tons of needle drops that you're like, yeah. oh yeah, of course. But also, I think he wrote one specifically for us. That's very Disneyified. It does like, have it does have uh, Wood Harris, who of course appears in The Wire, which Norma's going to watch real soon. But for <laughs> now, we will dive into our movies and let's remind ourselves. Imagine if I just never watch it. Like, <laughs> it could be one of those things. I go to my grave and my headstone is just like never. Never watch, watch the, the Wire. Wire. Yeah, what a shame. Uh, all right, uh, let's remind ourselves of these two movies. It's twenty. For our party people and control. Now remember, we are live, so no swearing or they will cut you off. What about Big Dog's cock? Can you say that? We missed you. Got it in, it's good. When I'm up there. Hi, I'm Tony Wilson. And this is the trailer for 24 Hour Party People. It's the incredible but true story of the man behind the scene that defined a decade. Who is this man? This is not about this sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Bonus. Although they are in it. It's not how it looks, love. It's not about me. I only got a blowjob, that's full penetration. <laughs> it's about music. So, this is the moment when even the white man starts dancing. 
All right, that was some footage there from two films that came out within about five years of each other. Was it 2002, 2007? 2002, 2007, yeah. Yes, it was indeed. Uh, first time for me seeing both these movies, for whatever reason. It is an era of music I would be interested in, bands I would be interested in. Um, can we just say right up front that the Happy Mondays are one of the worst bands of all time? Can we agree on that? Like, musically... And personally, Everything, if what yeah. happens in the film is to be believed on some vague level, they're horrendous. Like, I'm all for, like, navel-gazing debates about New Order versus Joy Division, which I'm sure we'll do later in the show, but I just don't understand the Happy Mondays thing whatsoever. And, like, the way that the film paints it, they almost, like, saved the Hacienda and they, like, brought rave culture into the mainstream. And I'm like, this is garbage. I also <laughs> find it really hard to square, like, the kind of person that Tony Wilson seemed to be, you know you know kind of pompous to 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 a degree or you know maybe not incredibly pompous um but like a believer in the arts who had worked with joy division and worked with new order and now he's like oh i'm like trying to like you know send someone out to like find the happy one okay well i guess um i I, i'm gonna assume that most people know what you're talking about but in case anyone doesn't they're gonna basically treat you like craig on new encore now and give you a bit of a sort of you for a bit of a primer can you give me a bit of a background as to what these two movies are about and specifically the people involved first up 24-hour party people yeah uh so 24-hour party people is directed by michael winterbottom um who'd been making movies for a while I think he's the most famous one at that time was Welcome to Sarajevo. Um, it is primarily about Tony Wilson and Factory Records, which was a label set up in Manchester in the 70s, late 70s. Um, first kind of big band that would have been on it were um, Joy Division, then uh, New Order, and then kind of brings you up to uh, the Happy Mondays. And they also ran the Hacienda Nightclub in Manchester for quite some time. Um, so 24 hour party people basically kind of takes you through the, the rise and fall, uh, from Tony Wilson's background as a, uh, TV presenter on Granada to kind of, kind of le- leading a double life where he, like, he was very much a, a public figure, but then would be in these like squalid, dank bars going to see punk shows with like 40 people at them, um, while looking for these bands, um, to meeting Joy Division, getting them signed. They're, kind of meteoric rise and then uh the, their end and yeah all the way through doesn't really touch on new order as much kind of like they, they'll they'll drop out of the movie um and yeah then we kind of, it's it's fairly scattered it's very, yeah it's, it's very, very scattered like ramshackle yeah. but that's i think mean, that's part of its charm like yeah. even, even like even like the intro credits which i thought were like disgusting to look at like it's meant to be like this whole thing's a big fucking you know drug fuel party rave who knows uh whereas yeah control is a lot more um focused i suppose uh shot by yeah boy antoine my, my, my man <laughs> Antoine, my man and Bono's man, Antoine Corbin. Um, yeah, so Control is um, from 2007, directed by Antoine Corbin. His directorial debut, he had kind of met Joy Division um, in the late 70s. Like, he moved from Holland, uh, was a photographer. He's a very, very famous uh, f- uh, photographer of musicians that you will you'll know his work uh, primarily in, like, very kind of high contrast black and white he's kind of like a street photographer because he never really goes into a studio but if a street photographer was like had a rolodex of like all the most famous people in the world so if you've ever seen the album cover for nick cave and the bad seeds the boatman's call that's antoine corbin there's a 
one or two uh, U2 albums. I can't think of which one. It might be How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. Um, Best one, as I we think, all know. I think that's... He, he took the photo for that. Which, but he, yeah, because he does also all the pr- music video. Yeah. And then, of course, yeah, he... Um, he made lots of music videos. Sorry, you're forgetting. I, I believe he was the promo guy for Metallica and Lou Reed. That project. He was, yeah. Was he? Mm-hmm. He um, one of the last men. Hell of a man. One of the last men to shoot Lou Reed. <laughs> he took them. Uh, he took them to like some really, and like an old naval yard to to take photos of them. Um, but he'd also he'd worked with Metallica before. He'd uh, he'd kind of helped. He like uh, Depeche Mode say that he he helped change their perception is just this kind of pop band to kind of like this kind of darker more gothic vibes than in the way he shot their music videos um similarly i think you two would say that he kind of helped in in their visual aesthetic um i in would the late say 80s. any of the photographs that he took of you two or bono are you two at their coolest yeah like he <laughs> they just like he, he makes them look he incredibly makes look cool. absolutely amazing like I, I sent you guys a photo like he there's a portrait he's done of uh clint eastwood where clint eastwood just looks like like an angry like gym teacher but like his his face looks incredible like the the, the i think it was like in the mid 90s so you know clint was in his mid 50s i guess but like the creases like the way he shoots them is amazing um but yeah he'd gone on to do lots of music videos had done the Metallica load and reload era music videos where James Heffield was like a traveling cowboy. Um, or a lounge singer, depending lounge on singer. it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, most recently kind of had done stuff with Arcade Fire. But yeah, uh, Control was his first his first uh, feature film based on Deborah Curtis's book, um, Touching from a Distance. And it's basically kind of standard biopic. Uh, brings you from uh, Ian Curtis's early teenage years to... Um, passing yeah and it's obviously laced in that style and it's monochrome it's you know either very good looking people or maybe even people who are just like all right looking made to look amazing like, like everyone looks fucking shit cool uh, everyone everyone looks great it's well styled whereas 24 hour party people from from a style point of view is like very kind of on the fly it looks almost like it's shot on fucking some grainy super eights or something but it's it's not nice to look at a lot of the time i didn't like the style i don't like michael winterbottom i think he's a hack like i, I don't like what he does <laughs> there's one shot in particular from the very start of 24 hour party people where um tony wilson and his wife Lindsay. So her name's Lindsay Reed. Um, they go to like one of the very first Sex Pistols gigs where there's like only 42 people there. So it's like, oh, we saw the Sex Pistols. And, uh, they intercut the film with actual footage. So it's like it, it cuts from, um, Steve Coogan as Tony Wilson in the audience to, um, to the Sex Pistols, but there's a bit where they like superimpose him over actual footage. It's a stunning look. I yeah, I couldn't believe it. It's just like it looked like someone vomited sure on the was, screen. Sure, he was meant to be because it looks so bad. Even for like 2002, you're like, this isn't a film that's going to employ CGI, but this is an attempt of it. But I'm just like, this looks so so fake that like it must be designed I, to. Like, yeah. it, it, I think it is. Like, there's a couple more stuff like that because even the the opening scene of Tony Wilson on the hang glider for Granada TV is like intercut with actual footage of tony wilson doing that oh and then like there's the scene later on where you have like the happy mondays are terrorizing pigeons and like there's like you know it's it's like the the camera is like strapped to a pigeon and it's like flying around it's like there's a lots of like cheap effects Mm -hmm. in it i think like that's 
part of the aesthetic. I think it's, it's meant to be this kind of yeah. Gonzo style. I, yeah. I found like the the screenwriter for it basically was just like it's a comedy. Like do not like they repeatedly say throughout the film in twenty four hour party people that it's like did this really happen? I don't remember that happening. I don't think this happened. And it's like semi narrated by uh, Steve Coogan as Tony Wilson. And um, yeah, so the writer was just like, it's it's really not meant to be taken seriously. But there's some bits that I was just like, there's a, there's a difference between like, oh, it's comedy. And it's just like, this is shocking bad. So uh, what, what I find interesting, though, is that the 24 hour party people in a narrative sense appears to be in a lot of ways a celebration and very much like this was awesome. Like, it's a glamorization, but the film looks ugly as fuck. Whereas Control looks amazing, but it didn't feel like a glamorization. It just felt like, this is a pretty tragic story, isn't it? Like, like this is not great. Uh, I don't know if either film succeeds in terms of getting across what they are ultimately trying to. I mean, the thing about Control is that, like, I think it's a very, very well-made A to B to C story. There's not, I guess you don't have much room for anything else, but, like, it literally like, goes up to the moment that he dies, and then the film's fucking over. And you're just like, okay. Um, grand. I don't know what the moral of this was. I guess there wasn't one. It's just a biopic. It's an account. And then with 24 Hour Party People, it's like it's meant to be this kind of like like over the top, I suppose summary of a time and a, and a person. Like Tony Wilson kind of bookends the thing and uh, like, yeah, I mean, like, I think they're they're successful in terms of what they're doing, but I don't think there's much more to them. Like, there's not a lot of substance in either of these movies, I didn't think. Maybe there wasn't supposed to be. Control feels more like it's meant to have something to say, and I don't think it does. Yeah, I think... I don't think 24-Hour Party People is trying to say anything, really. It's more it's more catching a vibe of that time. Um, and I think, like, like normal what you're saying about... Uh, Frank Cottrell Boyce who like wrote the script like it's it is there for gags it's, it's it's very very loose people are breaking the fourth wall it's not trying necessarily to lionize any of the people there but it's not trying to say anything bad about them it's just like this wasn't this the time you know while while control it, I mean it clearly it it is it, it takes the subject far more seriously and it um you know like Antoine Corbin knew Ian Curtis he'd, he'd taken photos of him countless times like it's based on Deborah Curtis's book um Deborah Curtis was a producer New Order do some music for Control like they're 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 far more involved in it which in a sense like we we've kind of bumped up against this already with, with biopics where like you have um either the the subject as a producer or say in the case of Bohemian Rhapsody um, where the, the bandmates are the producers and it's like, it's a little sanitized um, even though like it does look amazing and there's, there's lots to like about Control but I, I don't know. Yeah, there's not, like it's a movie that I kind of like mostly because I like the era and I like the band um, but well, I, mean, I don't know. You, I don't think you come out learning a whole yeah. lot about Ian Curtis. Also, un- yeah, I- unlike the last episode, we're not redoing really like a, a versus, so to speak. But on a base level, Norma, you first. Which film did you prefer, and why? I preferred Control, probably because I just I found the timeline is easier to digest for sure because it actually follows like chronologically in a less messy <laughs> form and a, a less like an actual 24 hour person. Um, and it is, 
I didn't know a lot about Ian Curtis, about Ian Curtis. And it did, like the thing with Control is by the end of the film, it did make me want to know more about him. And it did make me want to listen to the music and look up his lyrics and actually like find out more about him. Um, I did enjoy the film. I don't know if it's something that I would watch again necessarily. Um, I think the difficulty I had with it was because it's uh, loosely based on Deborah Curtis's memoir and she's a co-producer the film is kind of at odds with what it's trying to say I think primarily because it's like a biopic but it's also a look at their marriage but it's also not and it just doesn't really feel like it actually gets to the depth of anything because it's sort of like trying to cover her perspective as well. And it it has to jump to a lot of different things. It just, there was moments that didn't sit that well with me. Whereas at least with 24 Hour Party People, it's, in my opinion, like a lesser film. It's a very different type of film. I didn't enjoy it as much. The second you step into 24 Hour Party People, like I didn't know who Tony Wilson was. So I was just like, I have no idea what anyone's going on about. <laughs> I was like, people were saying things and I was just like, who I had to I had to pause it and just like look up a bunch of people from that time because I did think I was missing out on quite a bit it is interesting having watched both seeing the performances and seeing what certain people chose to leave in what certain people chose to leave out um even though like New Word have said with regard to both films the most of them most of both films are fabrication. But I also don't know how much you can trust New Order. Because they say a lot of, an awful lot of things. Well, uh, New Order um, are relatively litigious, so we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we're casting a wide net there. Uh, I guess, yeah, sorry, I guess real quick, in terms of tone and in terms of like being met with that kind of you know immediacy on 24-Hour Party People, uh, here's a taste of Steve Coogan's performance in 24-Hour Party People as Tony Wilson. What do you do? How do you mean? You know, your job here. Well, I'm, I'm Tony Wilson. I'm flirting with you. You are, yes. Is that obvious? <laughs> Don't judge. Piety is a very attractive quality. Flirting is a very natural process. She's aware of it. I'm being postmodern before it was fashionable. Um, yeah, so I think I, if I could say maybe like I prefer the first hour of 24 hour party people because once, <laughs> um, you know, you, you lose Joy Division from it and it kind of it pivots more into some of like, the lesser bands of, of the factory stable, like, um, like the Happy Mondays and a certain ratio. Um, it's not as fun. There, like, there is some, some fun kind of to be had in like setting up the Hacienda, but it also kind of gets like very real where it's like, Oh, like crime in Manchester. Like it became like a haven for drugs. And it's like, were we responsible for all this? Um, but I think, I think 24 hour party people is like, it's far more successful in what it's trying to do. Um, and it also has a, you know, I think from top to bottom, like in terms of cast, like it's a really fun hang of a movie. Like I've seen it a good few times now. I've seen Control twice, but I, I saw 24 Hour Party People when it came out. And I think I owned it on DVD for a while and would occasionally like throw it on. It's like, it's not a movie you need to pay that much attention to maybe first time if you're not, yeah. if you're not familiar with like who people I, are. But. It definitely, if it came on the TV or someone was watching on a gaff, I'd definitely sit down and I would enjoy it because I did enjoy the characters. It was just like... There's a lot of them. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot going on. <laughs> but, but after that, like it's the kind of one that like I could I could fire up a clip from 24 Hour Party People and like have a laugh at like 
you know, like Rob Gretton losing his shit over the 30 grand table or, um, you know, just how disgusting Peter Kay is in this film. Like, like very, very funny, almost like this kind of, um, the dark side of, was it Brian Potter from Phoenix Knights? He's essentially playing, um, but yeah, like, I think I'm also drawn very much to Coogan's performance. Like it's, He's definitely, he's doing a bit that he's very, very familiar with. Like, sometimes, like, his his comedy is... Can you divorce him from Alan Partridge? When the opening bit where he's, like, doing a bit for Granada TV of hang gliding, I was like, this is just Partridge, isn't it? This is, like... That that works to the benefit of this movie, but I I know what you mean. I think generally, yes, because, like, I think he is a pretty diverse actor. Um, But sometimes when he picks comedic roles... They are very partridge. Even ones that he like creates. Like, I'm, I'm, like, did you ever see like the show Saxondale that he did? It's like he's kind of like this petrol head, but it's like there's so much partridge in it. Like, I think because such partridge is such like a, a lived-in character, it's like it's hard not to see bits of him. Tony Wilson it does is basically Tony Wilson does. So. Yeah, he does feel like he has those that DNA to a degree. So Tony Wilson was known for being this like very over the top spouts philosophy kind of you know like reminds me of at least one of my friends i'm just like the bravado like it's just always fucking bravado and i guess some people loved it and were very attracted to it and some people despised it and couldn't stand it he was like very much like a a known figure he was like an iconic guy um it's hard to know like if he's likable you know like generally he's clearly like you know in like an egomaniac in a way but it appears that he wanted to start some kind of revolution that didn't just involve him and he, a terrible businessman it would seem <laughs> maybe one of the worst businessmen in music history <laughs> i think it's big fair fan to say. of big funny yates big funny yates yeah a bit of a red See, flag yeah. i would say <laughs> like, but yeah the, the performance is is steve coogan good in this role yeah yeah i very much think he is yeah like he like the, he, he, there, there is like a, it must be like a self awareness of the fact that the baggage that Steve Coogan brings, like, and in fairness now, by the time, I mean, by the time this came out, he'd done like three seasons of Partridge. Like, it's not like he was doing it now. I don't think he does these roles as much now. Um, but I think it's a, it's a really, really knowing. Uh, funny performance. I think I prefer the guy in control. He just seemed like really, yeah, Ken Parkinson. He I thought he was just a bit too right. Really, in I, like in just like I don't know. I guess it's like it's not as it's not like Control's not a comedy. I think so, I just believed him more. He felt like more of a real person. The thing you say about Control being not a comedy is like that. The one scene, like they obviously like a lot of major life events. Oh, with the uh, blood the bands are like recreated in both. And yeah, so uh, Tony Wilson famously wrote Joy Division's uh, Factory Records contract in his own blood. That was, and again, like, this is is another lovely, (laughs) lovely bit from 24 Hour Party People where he's like, where he's trying to, they're trying to sell Factory Records and your man's like, I'll give you 5 million for all of it. But then he's like, oh yeah, but like, we don't actually own any of the masters or anything like this. And your man's like, so I don't need to do this. And he's like showing him the contract, the contract's like written in blood. And he's like, yeah, it it says that they can, uh, when they want, uh, you know, fuck right off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but in in control it's a really weird scene because they play it super broad where like in 24 hour party people it's not that funny a scene it's kind of like oh this is kind of like gross but in uh in control there's a scene where like rob gretton goes back to tony wilson he's like oh no you've you've haven't put Mars, that in so he's like yeah. he has to like you know put it open up another wound and then 
he does this kind of like and like, passes, like, out. passes yeah. out it's like and they're all like ha, ha, ha. there are a few moments in control where they uh like I wouldn't say the comedy is shoehorned in it's definitely a kind of an incidental moment where they're like oh this might be nice to play up a f- more fun side to this um that I appreciate a lot. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's also, maybe I like Stephen Coogan more because you get more of him. Like, Tony Wilson actually features a lot less in control than I, th- I thought he would because I watched 24-Hour Party People first. Um, and then there is a line in the film where he's talking about Joy Division and he's like, oh, well, Joy Division were more Rob's band than mine. So he always wanted to have, like, his band. So the Happy Mondays were going to be, like, his band. Um, so when I was watching Control, like Rob, um, is Rob, Rob in it Gretton, way yeah. more. Yeah. Rob Gretton appears in it way more. And it does seem that he was the one who was actively managing them and doing all the kind of like the paperwork and the donkey work for them. Even to the point where I was looking up about, uh, Lindsay Reed talking about how just before, Ian Curtis had passed away that he had actually come to stay with her and Tony Wilson um, and had uh, with Anik Honore, who he was uh, having an affair with, or was he actually ended things with his wife? And was it legitimate? It seems like she a, begs to say that it's, it's not. It, enough yeah, way. it's there's been different accounts. Yeah, see, this is the tricky thing: is there's so many different accounts of what actually happened, so it is hard to try and glean for yourself what you think was going on. But uh, but that's cut out of control. It makes it seem like in control, like uh, Tony Wilson was kind of there, but wasn't as he's a supporting player. Yeah, yeah very much sure. so. Um, I guess in terms of like side by side depictions of the movies, it's interesting to see what characters get more play or who is treated differently. Um, one thing that both films seem to kind of touch on without really getting into it is that like. Peter Hook comes across like a prick in both films. Oh yeah. my god, both really badly. Like, and it's like, what's going on here? <laughs> like, I know Peter Hook, of course. He? Like, can, can there's a bit in definitive there's a bit in Twenty Four Hour Party People where Ian Curtis has a seizure and Ralph Little, who plays Peter Hook in Twenty Four Hour Party People, um, is like, where am I? He like goes through his pocket to get his cigarettes off him while he's having a seizure, and everyone else is like, "What the fuck, man?" He's like, he's in trouble, and he's just like rolling his eyes or like not interested. Yeah, and it's and like he comes in like yeah. triumphantly, being like, "Oh, just glass the skinhead." Yeah, completely. Yeah. And then I guess in like control, he's just kind of more, I guess, like I don't know, like arrogant or something. Like he doesn't have he much just, of yeah, a. He just comes off quite badly in that he was just like I don't know whether he disliked the relationships of how much they valued the other band members or what it was but it was just it seemed like I don't know maybe he's just like being a punk about it well the Peter Hook of like on the shoulder yeah well the Peter Hook of the last say five ten years you know I know people who've interviewed him and like say he's awesome and I've seen him you know kind of like interacting with fans and can be very very gregarious and obviously like you know is a very talented guy but like he's also a bit of a rent quote when it comes to just calling New Order cunts and stuff you know like, like that's kind of what he does they've obviously had legal battles he's very much doing his own thing these days uh, still making that that iconic signature baseline sound sing um, but yeah it's just I weird would, how like I it, would say where they differ massively is that the casting of Peter Hook in control he, he does look as much like Peter Hook as you can but the one the guy from 24 Hour Party People does not look like Peter Hook there was a point where I stopped it because I was like I just need to make sure these are actually the band members I think they are 
Yeah, it's, I guess that's kind of like, if you look at 24 Hour Party People in terms of the cast, like, it's such an of its time British cast. It's like, like a Channel yeah. 4 comedy cast. It's insane. Rob Brydon shows up as a journalist. Simon Pegg. Simon yeah. Pegg, yeah. yeah. Rob Brydon, like, you know, Ralph Little, John Sim. Dave Gorman as John the Postman. Andy, Sir- Andy Serkis <laughs> is in there. Like, Andy Serkis, tons, yeah. Tons he's great, more. actually, as... Uh, Martin Hannah. Paddy Considine as Rob Gretton, who of course Toby Kebbell does that in control. Both of those are very ramped up kind of big personality characters. Mm. I fucking love Toby Kebbell. I think he's a tremendous actor. Really, really good. Is he got does he have fake teeth? In control. Yeah. Or in real life. <laughs> it seemed like in the film. I don't know. There's just something it's a, there's a weird thing with the grain because it's like it is really, really beautifully shot. Um and uh because it's black and white his teeth just look so glaringly white there was points where I was like they fake well let's talk about one of the main main kind of uh, facets here in terms of the contrasting Ian Curtis so Sean Harris you know late of uh, Mission Impossible movies I love Sean Harris (laughs) Sean Harris is a tremendous actor very intense Um, very intense tremendously intense but also very very picky famously about his roles so he's like in Mission Impossible um, Fallout. Like picky about his roles, but he's in the Mission Impossible films. Well, that's the thing. So he's in Rogue Nation, right? As like Solomon Lane. Yes, and then he's in like Fallout. But the point is, like, spoilers for the Mission Impossible movies, which are amazing. Um, he's not. Is that a slight dig? No, well, no, no, but, no, but they're amazing. I fucking adore. You're talking to two people here who are obsessed all with right, that franchise. Right. Like, unironically, it's amazing. And um, so he apparently only agreed to do the fifth Mission Impossible movie if he was killed off. And then at one point, Christopher McQuarrie was like, listen, I'm not killing you off. And apparently he went mental. And it's just like, and he's in the sixth one. So I don't know what his deal is. Um, he's dropped out of stuff before, there's something big, I think, of recent times. He was supposed to be in American Gods, actually, that TV show. And I guess he saw the writing on the wall there and was like, nope. Um, he's in Prometheus, of course. He's in Prometheus as a punk rock geologist who is one of the first to go. Um, he's in Macbeth, which I really like, which no one watched. Uh, in- the- Fastbender version, yeah. I've seen that. Who's he in Macbeth? He's Macduff, who eventually kills him. Spoiler for a play from 400 years ago. <laughs> like Ruining Shakespeare. But he's got this intense, um, like, you know, kind of yeah, like... Yeah, he has, like, he definitely, if you look at performance footage of Ian Curtis, there's an extreme intensity with the eyes that uh, Sean Harris captures. He, d- I, I did find... Uh, the performance slightly jarring in that again it was like my first introduction to it and then I watched Control and I guess Control you get more of Ian Curtis's like lighter side or more of just like his home life and you see more of him whereas I feel like Sean Harris it was very much like he was a bit of like an aggressive obviously hyper intelligent but like a bit of an arsehole as well. I think yeah they, they, he's cast basically t- to play like one side of Ian Curtis because yeah he doesn't come across very it doesn't come across very nice 24 Hour Party People isn't about primarily Ian Curtis like Ian Curtis is in it and he he is a big part of it but like he's in maybe a third of it you know it's basically mostly Tony Wilson Um, and I feel like they they were only able to get him for you know a couple of scenes like the, the famous time that he first met Tony Wilson that's again recreated in Control where he just goes up to him at Tony Wilson, he's like, you're a cunt. And he like says it again. It's just like, if you're going to, if that's the kind of thing that you're going to have, if you're going to basically have like that scene and then you're basically going to have Joy Division, um, playing on stage, it's like that level of intensity that Sean Harris brings makes sense. But I don't know if it would work if you wanted to flesh that out and have the more tender side of like working in, um, 
you know, the Disability Employment Center and you have to go and see Sean Harris to try and get a job. It's like, <laughs> I don't know if he works as well in that scenario. Um, True, yeah. Uh, Sam Riley very much is a lot more innocent, um, younger, I guess. I mean, I don't know, maybe like they were of comparable age at the time. Sean Harris just seems like a middle-aged man playing in Curtis. Very theatrical. Yeah. He's good. Considering it's, it's, that like uh, they would have been... 21 22 uh, yeah in terms of the film's depiction like yeah, yeah if that and that i mean time. and i mean like i think he, like i think sam riley who i don't know is a good actor or not i think he is good in this but he also nails the vulnerability his look you know he looks a lot more like ian curtis i thought than john harris does um and certainly looks a lot more like a pinup version i guess he's a you know he's clearly a model right like he's like a very, he's very yeah, handsome he's man. a handsome boy um but I, like i think also that it helps that you know, if you want to look like Ian Curtis, that the person who famously photographed Ian Curtis is the one is shooting who's you. shooting you. <laughs> <laughs> who, like, who knows how to do it? Um, yeah, like we were saying, it is beautifully shot. I do, I th- I th- I really really liked um, Sam Riley in this. I uh, in control. I just thought. Yeah, he did the vulnerability really well, but he also did the boyishness really well because I feel like it's really easy to forget that. Uh, that Ian Curtis died at 23, um, but was married and had a child and a, like a failing marriage at that point. And like he does, I think, cover all those bases, which is even hard to do as like a basic level and add an extra layer of um, emotion and like depth on top of it. So I really, really liked his performance. Let's get a taste of him performing as Ian Curtis with the band playing She's Lost Control. It's a studio recording. Splice take really of um of how they go about the music. Did you, in terms of like the performances, because as Norma mentioned, like they do use some archive footage in Twenty Four Hour Party People. Um, this one in Control appears to be more of a naturalistic thing, um, kind of like on the Rami Malek scale. Where did this fall for you in terms of? Well, I believe that they actually played the they played the instruments. Yeah, for this one, yeah. So. Rami Malek was miming, wasn't he? I think so. I think they, he says he was singing. But his singing voice uh, overcut with someone else and then overcut again. Like 5% Rami, 95 Freddy. Um, it's like 40 XM. There's, a, there's yeah. a, like, uh, fingers just hanging over the auto-tune. Uh, bring the fader down on Rami a little bit and uh, just push it all the way up. You know, can we crank the gain on Freddy? Because I, I, I think Sam Riley is the lead singer of a band. Or was... Um, it makes sense because he, yeah. he, you know, it, it is him singing. I think they do a really good job. Of it. They like, do, yeah. I don't. I think live, like Joy Division studio recordings, and like they um, in in the clip that we just played there, you kind of see some of the genius of Martin Hanna, and they do it in Twenty Four Hour Party People as well, where like 
um, Stephen Morris's drums have like a very distinct sound. So in like 24 hour party BP, he's like, oh, the drum sounds shit. He's like, set them up on the rooftop. Or, and in this one, which like, by the way leads to like the classic drummer joke of and like, <laughs> he's like, when do I come back down? They're like, we'll, we'll send for you. And of course, it, it's smash cut later on to the band after a full day of recording and they're in the car going home and the drummer's still on the roof. And I'm like, <laughs> as a drummer, guys, I, 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 I thought that was a really, a real low blow. So there you go. It's funny though. And in fairness, it is very, very funny. the snare sound on that song is obviously like its own kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like in, in Control, they showed like that they're basically like, they have like a, an aerosol in front of the mic. Um, but... Yeah, so like, but but their but their live sound is like it's it's not as broad as that, and like they they wouldn't have had some like the the synths that were on the album. So I think they do like a really really good job of like again like they were playing like small venues that probably didn't have like great sound uh, setups themselves. So like it was raw, and I think it comes across really well. Well, on that note, actually, I'm just going to play another clip right now. So this is from Control again. It's the band performing Dead Souls. of its pivotal placement in the film but also I think that performance is arguably better than Joy Division's recorded performance of the song Dead Souls is a song now it's kind of like a reverse engineering for me because of course guys the first time I really heard Dead Souls properly and like came around to it was when Nine Inch Nails covered it for oh, the deep size when Nine Inch Nails covered they're both taking a drink as, as I'm talking when Nine Inch Nails covered it for the Crow soundtrack in 1994 which by the way includes an amazing Kira song called Burn and lots of other good stuff too Rage Against the Machine are on there good soundtrack interesting movie um, and yeah Nine Inch Nails version is fucking unreal and I remember like going back then because Joy Division are one of those bands that like I liked them yes I bought that t-shirt no I didn't know the band well enough to wear it and thus I mostly kept it in my wardrobe but essentially you go back to some of these recordings and like they're very of their time you know like that's not a shot like you know they sound like how much money was spent and where they were recorded whatever but like I I don't know I mean like maybe it's just like the way that this version was produced I was like this is fucking awesome <laughs> this sounds great yeah, um, I think yeah, like across the board, um, both between the bands, yeah, playing the the Jordy Bin songs live, they do like an amazing job, and I don't know if like they sound of their time. They're like a little ahead of their time, I think. You don't agree? Do you mean in do you like, mean in recording quality? Yeah, or, pretty much. Oh, yeah, yeah, because yeah. like, they remaster the tracks quite a bit as well, and yeah. I'm still like, no, again, it's not a knock. They sound phenomenal, but there's just like an element of like i don't know i mean like maybe it's me and my horrible bass boost headphones that i've been used to for my entire life and i'm like this should sound bigger and do you want to say which version that you prefer in general are you going to take the nine inch nails is that what you're going to do right now oh yeah of course yeah yeah but but also in fairness (laughs) i will say that the film version uh in control i think is up there yeah for sure yeah. Um, it, like, Dead Souls isn't their best song. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, the performances of the band are really, really well done in the film, and obviously, again, look amazing because Anton Corbin knows how to 
sheep musicians. And he's very good at doing kind of like in motion stillness. I don't know how to describe that. I'm not, I don't know enough about photography to be able to describe his technique. Where do you stand though um, on like, because obviously it's recreated in both films. I mean, like in general, where do you stand on Ian Curtis and his style? Like particularly his dancing and his kind of, because again, Norma, I think off mic, you were saying that if you go onto the YouTube comments now, it's a minefield of, you know, fucking introspection that maybe goes a bit too extreme in one in, in one direction you were saying earlier on of like just people just talking about him being a genius and ahead of his time we're just projecting like you know the the form of the, the way that he would move on stage is like oh, yeah. it was so a cry was for help there was like, one particular comment that was my favorite thing ever that it was like people are very intense about Ian Curtis on the internet but one of the comments was like um Ian Curtis isn't doing dancing. Dancing is doing Ian Curtis. Fucking like, hell! Like you, you need to relax. And also, there was a lot of th- there was a lot of talk about how people thought he danced in such a specific way due to his epilepsy. But um, I think Bernard Sumner was just like he actually just used to get really lost in the music and just yeah, he I also think- felt like it was like a release sort of thing to do his like little walkie like hand movements kind of, I love it it's I like, really it, like it, it as well it's, it's like a really bad Billy Strut yeah where he's just like shuffling the hands along I think yeah I think like his dancing was there from the start and it, it predated um, it's somewhere between his, like what you just said and also like football hooligan like there's an element of like it's terrifying he pulled it off but you oh, know and I think as well as if you like, saw your mate doing it he'd be like his what whole, the fuck his whole look as well like his like it's quite he tall he's very like, tall thin. And he wore, like high-waisted uh, slacks with like a, a tucked in shirt and then like the you know it'd be a long sleeve shirt but he would somehow have managed to like roll um, the sleeves all the way up so like it was bordering on being like a tank top <laughs> So it was just like you had these long arms, uh, just like waving around. Uh, yeah, like I love it. It's like it's you know it's incredibly iconic. And the again. sweatiness they get the sweatiness. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I thought again, that was like, like wear some breathable th- fabrics on stage <laughs> if you're going to be. But I thought it was like just a thing in the film, as if they were trying to show that it was all grungy and gross at the time. And then I watched actual footage. I was like, oh god, no, they were all as sweaty as. Either film depicts them to be. You mentioned uh, Bernard Sumner there, who, of course, would go on to be uh, one of the worst lyricists of all time. <laughs> <laughs> and lead singer of New uh, Order. <laughs> and again, like, you know, we, like, he's a very easy target, and I like New Order quite a lot. But yeah, he's not the best singer, the best vocalist, or the, the best fucking lyricist, and that's fine. But he's also, you know, I think people have criticized him before, and other people where they're like, how did you not see this coming? Like, surely you could have saved this person. And like Bernard Sumner has said before that, on when he died or after he died like you'd look back in some of those lyrics and you're like we just didn't fucking realize and people go people get really mad at that kind of stuff but i'm like it is possible <laughs> like uh, to uh, see the text yeah. and not see the fuck like like it can be as 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 flashing neon light as it might appear after the fact but like again i think you, you know you take the artist on their merit you you buy into the idea of characters, you buy into the idea of otherworldly kind of lyrics that are hard to figure out. And like, even when they're as naked as they can be, it's entirely possible that someone's like, no, no, like this is actually not a reflection of who I am or whatever. I, not that anyone has, I don't think anyone has seriously held the members of Joy Division to account or anything for no, negligence. I, I found an interview. But it must be really fucking difficult for them as well to, yeah. to one day be like, oh, fuck, really? I mean, like we, we should have known. There, I found an interview with Anika Nore, so... Um, she was a journalist that Ian Curtis met and then engaged in an affair. It's kind of a bit blurry as to whether his marriage was already like failing and kind of more or less over at this point. Um, 
And then she also maintains it was a platonic relationship and that it was actually never physical. But she, apparently she spoke to Tony Wilson. So there's a, there's an incident where uh, Ian Curtis takes a number of pills and does, is it like with the intention of taking his life? I wasn't yeah. entirely so, sure so before, if that was on purpose died, or not. A month before, yeah. um, he did have a suicide attempt where yeah. it's it's in control. It's not in 24-hour party people where, yeah, he took an overdose of, um, I believe it was his epilepsy medication, was which is like yeah. very, very strong or very, drugs. Yeah, like a and then he went out and drank a lot. And he comes home to um, to his wife, Deborah, and he kind of lets her know what happened. And he, yeah, he leaves he a suicide note as yeah. well. And like the suicide notice, he's like nothing to fight about anymore. Give my love to Anique. Yeah. Like, his wife is like so, incredibly crushing. So I, I understand like the, the, what you're saying. She was like, like in this interview, she was just like, why didn't we just stop it there? Why yeah, wasn't there like nothing they, in place? And again, like it, it showed in control that like he was admitted into hospital that night and then was released. And then they played a show that night. Like, I don't, you know, it's kind of hard to be like, you don't want to just reel out, oh, they were different times, but like they were like, people didn't talk as much about their, their mental health 40 years ago as they would now. And I don't think people were aware, like the, the, the rest of the band kind of would say that like, they'd never really read into his lyrics. So like, even I think for the, the closer record, they, they were just like, we hadn't even read the lyrics and it was kind of after the fact we were like, fucking hell. Um, which you could understand. I do think, there wasn't a great duty of care in the fact with his seizures, like, which, you know, you see a couple of them in control. They were, there was a lot of them in real life. And, you know, um, in, 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 in Deborah Curtis's book, she kind of talks about how he wouldn't, he'd play a gig and he'd come home and he wouldn't go to bed until he had a fit. Like he'd wait up and he'd wait for the seizure because he feared that he'd die if he had one. Well, he slept. Like, oh my but God. he also he he hid a lot he hid a lot from her that he told to the band you know primarily like about how unhappy he was in his marriage um and obviously they knew a lot more about anique but then he would confide how he was feeling to deborah but he he made he made this very stark um put like a wall basically between deborah and the band so that she could never really feel like she could talk to them about his mental state and he, he'd be more open to her about that. And then they would never feel like they could talk to her about other things that were happening with him in the band. So he kind of, in a way, was like he was fooling everyone because they, you know, they, they have a lot of quotes where they're, he was like, he was a very happy go lucky guy. Like, you don't see that in control, I don't think. There um, is that, um. There, sorry, there's just, a, there is one very nice scene, and I know it's meant to be the kind of cheesy, very sweet scene, um, where he's with Anique, and she's like, I actually, I love you, but I don't know anything about you. And she's like, What's your favorite movie? And he's like, The Sound of Music. And he's just like, <laughs> yeah. oh, That's cute. That's The bit when sweet. she was like, um, And then she's like, What's your favorite color? And he's like, Blue, Man City Blue. And she's like, What's Man City Blue? And she's also like, tell me about Macclesfield and I was like that's just the most insane line out of context ever and he's like it's terrible but no I was going to say that there's a nice moment in 24 Hour Party People where Tony Wilson goes you know look obviously we all focus on the, the doom and the gloom but I remember great nights I remember great moments and there's a bit where it shows him singing uh, with other Louis people Louis. Yeah, yeah in like in the bar that they're in which and, was a thing that like they always 
did at those shows. To close out the show, was not the person who would do yeah. it. Who was just this dude who would just get on stage and that do it. That was like, another thing so I was like, I feel like someone's like, pulling my leg. There's <laughs> <laughs> like a joke I don't get here. One last thing, just put a button on the whole idea of like, you know, it's being in a band with someone and not necessarily seeing what's right in front of you. I can promise you that the world over, there are musicians in bands, whether it's fucking bass guitarists, guitarists, drummers, whatever, who don't know the lyrics. You know, just do not know. Do not care. Also, Focusing again, on what they're doing. Like, I feel like I, I continually forgot that he was like, when he died by suicide, he was 23, which is just so young. And, and like, barely 23. I think he was like, yeah. tw- like, like just turned, like not too long prior. And it like that at the rise of Joy Division he was probably 20, 21 writing those lyrics not even incredible. 20 or 21 because like Joy, Joy Division's window was two basically Jeez. two years you know they kind of started in 77 like I think Unknown Pleasures was 79 Closer was after he died like um, they like they were very much like they hadn't got anywhere really you know they're on the eve of playing uh, a tour in the US not even their own tour they were going to be sporting uh, the Buscocks and they played one European tour of like 10 shows they probably have played 200 shows tops and they're all kind of like your standard student unions in you know uh, Luton or Leeds like they were kind of on the precipice of something but like it's it's insane to think of not that they were insignificant at the time because they, they were well revered by everyone who liked them and like they were well reviewed and pressed, but like they hadn't broken yet. Like they were getting there, but um, yeah, because I guess a local terrorist part is posthumous. Yeah, yeah, and it was like it was such a, a short period of time. In terms of um, how both films handle the suicide, I found in Twenty Four Hour Party People, I found that quite shocking um because it's, it's like it's kind of like you're seeing sean harris in front of the tv say like smoking cigarettes watching whatever and then all of a sudden it cuts to a pair of like his legs and his and, and yeah. his, like, his shoes Wait, like is like, it the iggy pop the idiot is playing no in in, in so, control it is he, yeah yeah so in in 24 hour party people it's Werner herzog Stro- strosek which famously ends with like this dancing chicken and the strosek itself is like about a guy who ends up taking his life because he's like torn between two women and and it is actually what Ian Curtis had watched that night he he told I can't remember if it was Bernard Summer or Peter Hook that he was like he at the time he was staying with his parents because um things weren't good at all with uh Deborah and that he was like going back to the family home because he's like, oh, I want to watch this movie, but my dad wouldn't appreciate it. And to kind of give them a reason why he could be away. But yeah, he did then, I think, listen to the idiot was like the last thing he did. Because Deborah Curtis said like a week later when she finally went back to the house, like that it was like still like skipping Spinning on the record on the player. There is a moment in control where it shows him like the build up to the moment um, his decision uh to take his own life is quite long like for a film that moves generally quite slowly anyway but still covers quite a lot of things that moment was uh, like quite slow and almost like very unsettlingly slow and then it ends the film ends with an absolute really abrupt I thought uh, and that's it it shows the reaction shots of like three separate groups of people yeah and the film ends. I thought it was actually going to happen before it happened because the build-up was, it did kind of stray yeah, into like dread, so. like dread territory. I think in both cases, it's as respectful as you can be. I just found that like with 24 Hour Party People, just the image of like, you know, someone swinging and like mm-hmm. it, it, that's a, that's a fairly elongated shot. 
and obviously the association that you know we have of course with male suicide and you know death by hanging is quite common it i just find that you know maybe it's just a getting older thing but i just find that that can be extremely i'm not saying never depict it i'm not saying whatever they do both apply sensitivity and it is a factual thing that happened you can't not like lean into it but like it's just very very upsetting and like i thought in in control's case um like maybe it was just the build-up and the sense of innocence that Sam Riley brought to the part. Uh, I want to talk about their relationship and Samantha Morning in particular in a moment, but like, I maybe it's even like the fact that like they picked Atmosphere, which is my favorite Joy Division song, and just I guess the crushing inevitability of what was going to happen. I was fucking gone. Like I found that really really hard, and I was like in tears. Whereas in Twenty Four Hour Party People, it is kind of like a and now welcome to Act Two of the film. Yeah. Um, and again, not in a disrespectful um, way. It's yeah. just a weird. Yeah, yeah. it's like. The he hangs himself with um, the clothes drying rail that's in their kitchen. And because that features actually quite often throughout the film as having like baby clothes on it and stuff like that, it definitely felt extremely weighted. Um, and also because for most people watching Control probably know how it ends. Almost definitely, most, yeah. Yeah, yeah. most people know. Um, yeah, it was a really, really difficult moment and then with the film actually ending just with Samantha, Samantha Morton screaming. screaming was was really, really unsettling. It's extremely hard to take. I think I actually, it's one of the, like the few films in a very long time where I just sat and watched the credits yeah. because I couldn't yeah. like really do anything. And I was by myself. So I was also <laughs> just sitting there watching like this huge TV with the credits roll. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, there's a quote from... Peter Hook, when it premiered at Cannes, and he's like, yeah, we like the film, even though we think actually a lot of it was made up and like it doesn't, he was like, a lot of the stuff is sort of dramatised. But he was saying that at the end of the film, everyone clapped and he was quite upset by it because he felt like a moment of silence would have been more appropriate, um, which is what I imagine most people go through upon finishing the film. Good old can doing what it does. Um, yeah. Innovation. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah, it, it's, it's obviously extremely heavy subject matter. I think that they do their best with it. And it does, especially as you say with Control, it does leave you just feeling kind of a bit bereft as it should. Um, let's take a little clip though from previously in that movie, which is like a decision that I'm not sure works, but it will lead us in to be able to talk about Deborah and Ian Curtis properly. There's a moment where he tells her in the streets that he doesn't love her anymore, and it goes a bit like this. Do you want to sleep with other men? What? Do you want to sleep with other men? <laughs> That's a strange question. <laughs> because if you did, it'd be okay. I'd be okay. Are you being serious? When you say a thing like that, it makes me think you don't love me anymore. I don't think I do. Well, that's very much an on-the-nose moment in the movie. Um, maybe it went down like that. I'm pretty sure if it did go down like that, then Love Will Tear Us Apart wasn't blaring in the streets afterwards. A strange needle drop choice for I guess your most well known song, which of course has been covered into oblivion by everybody, um, often inappropriately. Did that take you out of the movie? 
Um, no, I actually really like it. And that, that is exactly what was said in that scenario. Like it's basically taken straight from the page of, uh, page of, uh, Deborah Curtis's book. I thought it really, really worked. Like he kind of, I don't know if he could just cut, you know, and go straight on to the next scene. He kind of needed to l- let something be Have there. And, put, <laughs> and, and I don't know what other Joy Division song you realistically could put in there. Um, I think it's a, a very, very good needle drop. There was a, a lot of debate about who Love Will Tear's Apart was about, because loads of people tried to attribute it to Anique, but it is about Deborah Curtis, right? I think they found, they found Manu, or like his journals that were more or less linking that it is her and his I think relationship. It makes more sense for her. Yeah. Okay, well, this is something I know that I, I guess you probably both want to talk about, but Higgs, I know that you take issue with control based on, I suppose, the translation of Deborah Curtis's book. How do we think the film presents their relationship and how well is it captured? It's, a, it's, it's strange because this isn't fiction, but... It's it's hard not to not think of her in like the nagging wife role because it's yeah. like that's what the trope is, and I know Norman and I are apparently going to disagree on this. I thought Samantha Morton was amazing in this villain. I it's not that I I she doesn't give a bad performance. My issue is more actually with the depiction of her character and I guess the depiction of their relationship. I felt like I could never really understand the connection that they had with each other, and then it was like. Is the film about their failed marriage or is it about him or is it about how it was handled? And there's like in that scene where he explains like, oh, do you want to, you know, you could sleep with other men. I don't mind if you want to sleep with other men. And uh, the scene just before it, they're at a friend's party where um, Deborah's talking to one of her friends and she's like, the friend is like, oh, and he's off on tour and stuff. And like, do you ever worry about anything? She's like, no, 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 he loves me. And like, he doesn't even like me talking to other men. And he doesn't like me wearing short skirts, which is like meant to hint at that he kind of a controlling nature, which doesn't, isn't brought up at any other point in the film. So I was like, I don't. And then you cut to the next scene of him who's supposedly controlling, doesn't let her wear short skirts or talk to other men. And then he's like, you can sleep with other men if you want. I just felt like it didn't, I didn't understand. Obviously the relationship was extremely complex in that he did love her. And like maybe certain elements of the relationship had begun to fade or like there was, they had experienced different problems and at such a young age to have been married and had a child and were trying to deal with probably more adult emotions than most people that age are capable of. I just... Yeah, she just comes across as this like scorned, nagging housewife who hates the other woman. And I was just like, is that it? Is that what the, the relationship is? Um, it just it just bothered me a bit. I, but yeah. she's very good. It just I didn't like the character. Depiction. I think she's very good, but it's I find it and it, like it's my biggest gripe with the movie, and I find it incredible that, you know, this is based on a book that she wrote. And it's nothing That's like... That's why it's, it's so weird, because she wrote like, it. <laughs> it's nothing like the book that she wrote. Like, you know, this is a, um, this is very much a movie about the legend of Ian Curtis. Well, her book is very much about the nightmare that is being married and being in a relationship with Ian Curtis. And like what you said, like there's only tiny bits of, of reference to, to the kind of relationship that they had like um, you use the word control like name of this movie it works on lots of levels it works on a perfect level when you think about their relationship like um, 
and they they don't go into it enough like you know the the reference like oh he doesn't like me talking to other men he doesn't like see me wearing a short skirt um if i can like just give you if like a few things that like happened in their relationship um like he made her leave school early because he said that he didn't want to be seen to be going out with a a girl who was still in school like like this is when she was like 16 17 immediately getting a job um at their engagement like the, party like because the marriage and the baby are his ideas yeah, as well, yeah. I guess. um at their engagement party and again like they got engaged really really early um he got really really drunk he got jealous that she was dancing with her uncle and like threw a drink directly in her face um he wouldn't let her dance at her cousin's wedding was like complaining about what she was wearing she insinuates that he like basically insisted on having sex in a train with them on the way home and like one of the quotes that like kind of is give you an idea of like where she was at after like that happened she was she says by now i was not only used to ian's jealous and possessive attitude but also his particular brand of retribution i felt he was re-establishing ownership um he spent all their money basically they were broke like they were broke the whole time like joy division weren't a successful band they had like you know jobs but they had a mortgage they were like always struggling to pay bills, but he'd always like basically take all the money and buy cigarettes. Um, there was like a moment where they were about to go on the first European tour when Natalie, his daughter, was born, and he was basically just like, "Oh, we should sell, we should sell the the house and like you know move into a flat." And then he was like, "Oh, but like Hook, Peter Hook is like, oh, you know, you guys shouldn't be living in the house." Like basically, like she's like, "Okay, where am I supposed to live then?" And then you know. She went away for a minute and like basically the car pulled up and as she was coming like to wave goodbye to him going off on a European tour and like he wouldn't even like look at her. Like it's a absolute nightmare and like they don't go into it at all. Yeah, there's like there's like elements of it are hinted at, but this, I just felt like I couldn't actually this yeah, like this understand movie, where it was coming from. This, yeah, it like I mean it's just about Ian Curtis. This movie should really be like a two hander if you want it to be true yeah. to the relationship. But again, and, you know, I'm assuming everyone involved has, like, read the book. Um, they all have their perceptions of Ian, particularly, like, Ant- Anton Corbin has known him for so long. And it's, like, it would be a very different movie. I think it would be a much better movie. But this kind of, like, it would be a very tough um, biopic to digest. And it's like it kind of comes to the point of what I was saying earlier. It's, like, apart from Deborah Curtis, who, like, clearly wrote these words... Like, do the rest of them want to, you know, be like, oh, this is the memory of our former bandmate. Um, and it's definitely something that, like, the movie needs to address a bit more. Is there um, is there a conflict there in terms of the... I haven't read the book. So, I mean, like, overall in terms of her um, depiction and accounts and everything. Well, she co-produced the films. Yeah. yeah. That's why I was like, surely this is an accurate representation. Because even, like, I mean, obviously, like, recently it was the 40th anniversary of his death. So, like, you see all of the, the lionization kind of pieces that are out there. And it is generally accepted in the public consciousness that Ian Curtis is a tragic frontman who was fucking amazing. And, you know, you don't apply the same lens, you know, like you mentioned even like throwing a drink in her face and obviously being abusive. These things aren't really talked about. I'm curious as to her overall, is she kind of like, he was also great. I mean, like, like what yeah, is the, yeah. Look, she, there, there is balance in the book. It, the balance is strange. And like, you know, I don't want to psychoanalyze someone, but like sometimes it like literally the next paragraph would be like, Oh, he was great with Natalie. And 
like she gets into how much the Caesars affected him like a lot more than this does as well like and just kind of like the traumas that he had of that and he had been clearly suffering from depression that doesn't seem to have been diagnosed since teenager like he he had confided in her about basically I think they do mention the movie of like not wanting to see past his mid-twenties and um Again, like it was the kind of thing where he would tell her things that he would never say to the other members of the band. Like after the his his the suicide attempt, and when he was being like brought home from the hospital, he was basically just like, "I've achieved." Once we recorded transmission, and once we recorded unknown pleasures, I achieved everything I wanted. And like, but he would like he would have never said that to the people in Joy Division. But so she does. Like the the moments of him being nice are kind of sparing, and like they. They don't really like balance out, you know, if just, just looking at it objectively, like they don't seem to balance out with the, the trauma that seems to exist with being with him. There's just, there's an interesting scene in 24 hour party people, which is probably the most amount of dialogue you get out of Joy Division where they finish recording and they get into the car, they forget the drummer. Um, and they're listening to the song and, uh, Tony Wilson's like, oh, it sounds like Bowie. Or no, actually, sorry. It's Ian Curtis says it sounds like Bowie. And Tony Wilson's like, you love Bowie. And he's like, I hate Bowie. And he's just like, Bowie said you shouldn't live past 25. And he's like 30 now. And he's a liar. And he's like, well, you know, a lot of people achieve great things later on in their lives. And it's like, there's that hint of the thing, how he was obsessed with this idea that it's like, you achieve something and you die young. And it's like, that's uh, as... A glory in it. Or oh something? yeah, it's the, it's the Achilles thing. It's live yeah. fast, die young, leave a good looking corpse. Like it's very much and like uh, you know, none of us know. <laughs> like was it something that he actually aspired to, or because I mean, the way the film frames it, particularly in Control, you get the sense of someone who was not fully emotionally developed was also very guilty and scared, and ultimately couldn't handle everything in his life, whether it was his wife and child or his band the idea of going to America, letting down people, playing in front of people. That moment in the film where Sam Riley can't go on stage is very powerful. Like, I mean, Sam Riley fucking nails that big time. And it's interesting because, I mean, I asked earlier on, like, is Sam Riley a good actor? And I still don't fully know. I've only really seen him in other things like Franklin, which is an art film that doesn't quite work, and Byzantium, which is an art film that doesn't quite work. And another film, did he convince me? In this, though, he really, really did. He really, really got into those kind of... He looks the part for sure. You can you can project it onto him, yeah. but, I, but I think he brings a bit more to it. I think he actually does. And this is his first role, I think? Yeah, first mm. role. Jesus. So originally, uh, you know, it might be slightly apocryphal, but I think Andrew Corbin had said that, like, they were looking at Killian Murphy, but they were like, he's too short. Which I <laughs> wouldn't have thought was a thing, but um, well, yeah, if you, you want to go by look, um, Sam Riley's perfect. And, yeah. Like, he, he, he does do a lot. Like, I, I would... You know, the issues I have with control aren't with him. And I would like to have seen him um, show the kind of like the more caustic, you know, apparent side to Ian Curtis. I would like to see what he would do with that. Well, is it a better film if Corbin shoots it and someone else directs it? Like, is he too close? We don't, we, again, we don't know the guy. But, but I like, guess there's also like kind of like you were saying, is there an appetite for people wanting to see the cruel side of Ian Curtis or would they rather just leave that? Most people want to go be, and see a, a film like this or a better subject matter. They want to come away being like, what a guy. Yeah. What yeah, a guy. Yeah. So it's tricky. That the, validates my opinion of him going in, you know. One, the, only, the only other thing I had real difficulty with the Ian Deborah relationship is that uh, 
So I think at the time of filming, Sam Riley was like 27, maybe 26, um, and does look very young. So when they, it, it starts off with him as a, like a teenager and he's got this kind of flopsy haircut. So he looks quite young. Um, and then has the more kind of like, 70s Ian Curtis haircut um, and still still is quite baby faced and you do get a lot of the like oh he's just like he's hyper intelligent but is emotionally stunted and like has these issues and is quite um, naive and boyish Samantha Morton continually looks about 32 throughout the entire film yeah I mean like which I think adds to the element was, I think 30 but yeah I think she was 30 she's about, like they're both supposed to be playing 16 or maybe yeah, but I feel like what adds Curtis to that yeah what adds to the idea of like the thing that frustrated me is there was times where I was like oh I wish she just I, I wish she would walk away from this or like she seems like a mature woman who's in control of things why doesn't she just sort this out and I was like oh yeah because she's still only meant to be 22 as well yeah and it was just hard she just does not look 22 so I guess in terms of a wrap up, like one of the questions you've written down here is like, what feels more authentic to its time and its place? I mean, it's got to be 24 hour party people, right? Because it does capture a time and a place, whereas control feels like, don't get me wrong, it, it looks like it was sh- like like in the era that it's supposed to be in, but it's clearly, it's a character drama, you know, like that's, it's about people and it's about the, the things that happen to them. Whereas I would look at 24 hour party people as almost like, it's a festival in a film. Like the whole thing feels like you're kind of transported into this kind of world. Uh, Control does that in its own different way, but this felt more like it felt faithful, you know, like it felt like, like in terms of what you said I had to do as like a mission statement of like, let's at least make this feel right. I figure that's the one to go with. Yeah, no, I, I agree on that. Like again, Control is a beautiful looking film, but like, I don't want to see like a, punk show in the 70s like gorgeously framed and like you know having like a lovely contrast of black and white like you want it like verite essentially you want it like almost like handheld in the crowd to get a a feeling of what it was like um i don't think you really get that in control like all the performances kind of look the same um and yeah i think when you consider like how um like Ramshackle Factory Records was with like writing contracts in blood and like anyone can leave when they want. And it was like very freewheeling. Like they get the vibe of it so much better in 24 hour party people. Also, if, um, if you were making any of these films again today, is there anyone that comes to mind to you for casting? The only one that really jumped out at me as like a, without having to think about a thing was, and like, it should be said that the guy that they got to play Sean Ryder in 24 hour party people, <laughs> I mean, Wow. Like, I don't know how you found that guy, but perfect. Like, literally perfect. Yeah. But if it was made today and someone else had to play Sean Ryder, I would nominate Thomas Turgus of This Is England fame. That's a great show. I feel like anyone from This Is England <laughs> can slide into any of those roles. Fair enough, yeah. Um, I, I struggled with this, I have to say. I I wouldn't... Okay, well, uh, I don't, I don't want to... I don't want to... Could Killian Murphy have played... Ian Curtis, do we think? I think he could have. I don't think so. Really? I think he, I think he probably too, is too old. Like, too he's too, he's like... too a soft a face in terms of like that. I find it hard to like feel menace from Killian Murphy. Really? Well, like, he can be very Ian, Like Ian Curtis looked <laughs> Have you not like seen a, Red Eye? Ian Curtis like looked like a grumpy prick. Like he did. He looked boyish, but he looked like he was in a fell mood all the time. Well, like... 
like even Killian, even if you're like Killian Murphy's eyes are just like you're just like oh, so. Just Colin Farrell eyes. is what you're saying. No, I was thinking Jonathan Rhys Meyers. <laughs> Why are you just so naming Irish I could, actors? I could, only, I could only think about this in seven. You're all Paul Mescal. <laughs> I, I was get him. I was curious actually because I know he did go on to play a you know someone who was in control. I went on to play a, a fictional rock star in. I haven't even considered it this, that this qualifies for no popcorn. Guy Ritchie's rock and roller. Toby Kevill. Toby. I was like, mm. what would Toby Kevill be like as a Ian Curtis? Because he has like he does have a really good intensity to him. I think he's a remarkable actor. The only person I could think at the time because like Sam, like Sam Raimi, yeah, it was like twenty seven, twenty eight. Mm. He looks the part. I was like, you need a young actor, obviously, because he he was twenty three when he died. Um, in 2007, if you had got Pattinson before <gasps> he did Twilight, oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a really like, good one. And he's he has, super he does pale. have a kind he of like gone, yeah, and um, but the, he like he can be wiry. Yeah. Um, is he I don't tall? Know if he's tall enough, but like Antoine Corbin for like, have you seen Lord of the Rings? Ian McKellen's not Yo, twelve. Foot. Robert Downey Jr. Just get some fucking platforms, mate. <laughs> like this. the Tom Cruise shoes. <laughs> Okay, real quick. Uh, it might not be a fair straight shootout, but it's something that we do. And I actually ran a Twitter poll to this effect, and winning with 64% of a vote of 118 people was Joy Division uh, over a 36% for New Order. Joy Division or New Order? I think New Order are the better band. Maybe that's sacrilege for people? I will say it's not even a question. It's Joy Division, and I will, I will quote <laughs> a friend of the show, George Moore, when he said that New Order are better than Joy Division is a what's going on is a 7 out of 10 album take. It was Craig Fitzpatrick's take and not my take. Norma, what's your answer? Um, a better band, I'd probably go with Joy Division. Wow. Okay. Maybe I mean more enjoyable band to listen to. Yeah, like, I feel New Order definitely more of a, of a party band. And, like, actually, a thing I came across that was really interesting was apparently they had a conversation as Joy Division at one point where Ian Curtis was like, if one of us was to ever not be in the band anymore, the band can't continue. And they all agreed that if someone... It wasn't like... The phrasing wasn't like someone left the band. It was just like someone wasn't there anymore. They all agreed that they would not be Joy Division, and that it would the like, name, they yeah. would change the name or that they would disband and do whatever else, but it wouldn't continue to Which be Which was Division. the right call, ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, but they it's just interesting it that again, quickly, that there's like a... It's like Within months. a year. No, yeah, three Another months. album they played, was out. They played oh. their first show after, as, not officially as New Order, because I think Rob Gretton came, came with the name for New Order, but like... Two great names, he, by the he, way. Yeah. Yeah. So Ian Curtis died. Well, is Joy Division a great name? It is. It wouldn't... It wouldn't... It wouldn't fly today. No. No, you wouldn't Looking get away with Looking at you, Viet Cong, but you're not allowed. But it's a really... No, it, it is a very good name, though. Yeah, for yeah. About, like, like, for example, like I think Jane's Addiction is an amazing band name, yeah. and I'm surprised that hasn't been cancelled yet, either. Um, but, you know, I think... Um, so he died in early May... And I think by like late July, they played a show as New Order. Jesus. Yeah. Because they were also like, we never got to play Closer, anything off Closer Live. Um, but yeah, yeah, I found that like very kind of like. Tasteful? Well, it was just because like, I think their first album was like, I don't want to tell anyone, a- anyone so how to like- grieve, but like, it was just like, Jesus, like. Well, according to Tony Wilson, it was a very fast-paced music scene. Um, okay, I feel like we've definitively solved all those. Uh, <laughs> is there anything else before we move on to what we're doing next? I thought that was uh, an interesting return to form. Two interesting if I can movies. End on like one this was mostly kind of funny light. Notes this was like seventy-five percent control. Touching, touching from a distance. All right, piece of shit. They're terrible. The worst band. 
So, so one one funny like now because like uh-huh. touching from this is a very very heavy book, but uh, uh, De- Deborah Curtis talks about one time where Ian Curtis like applied for a job and he like went down to London, and they were like, "Oh, we need to take your photo," and he was like, "Oh, okay," and they, like taking some photos of him, and then the job turned out to be a gigolo in the south of France. No way! Oh my god! <laughs> Holy shit. So the last four films over the two episodes that we've done last have all been very heavy, (laughs) like extremely heavy, Uh, but it's been good cathartic release. And now it's time for something completely different. On the next episode of No Popcorn, this is the film that we will be discussing. Ever since we were children, we've had one dream. Winning the Eurovision Song Contest. This is Secret. We are Fire Saga. Who wants to hear Eurovision song? All of Iceland thinks we are a joke. That's not true. And my father is ashamed of me. No, he's not. He looked me into the eyes and said, I am ashamed of you. Maybe he was drunk. He said, and you might think that I'm drunk, but I am it. Dead sober. That's right. It's a recent Netflix smash and not critical darling Eurovision <laughs> starring Will Ferrell, uh, Pierce Brosnan, Dan Stevens and Rachel McAdams. Actors who on paper I'm generally here for. This is a film I'm not here for and Dave Higgins has decreed that it's what we'll be doing next. Are you looking forward? I, I think none of us have seen it yet. Are you looking forward to all two hours of this two film? Hours and three minutes. Fucking hell. No comedy should be over an hour and a half as a rule. But this seems extreme. Yeah, this is this is this is already pushing it. Um, I know I picked this, but I'm not looking forward to it. But I think we needed a comedy. Yeah, we did. Are we doing? We a, need a, are we doing a drunk group screening? Or are we? Is that we idea? That so the plan originally was that we would like. I suggested that we we record this, then we watch Eurovision, get drunk, and then record the episode right after. And you were like, no. <laughs> well, we've been recording for. Almost two hours now. Yeah. yeah and then a two-hour movie. And then another podcast is madness. I want to bring no popcorn back on the regular. Like, this is how we do it. But no, I think what, we may still do the group viewing, but it won't be happening in this exact setting is the point. But we'll see. Because um, we have another one lined up as well for after that, which will be also in the more lighthearted vein as well. So yeah, we're going to like try and blast through a few of these episodes and bang them and see how it goes. I'm not looking forward to this Eurovision thing at all. I Because it just... I've had people message me in advance being like, this is horrific. But I've also seen people love it. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe it'll be a, a surprising. I've heard a lot of bad things. But then I've to- also been told that there was a, a particular thing that I will love. Like a three minute sort of segment that I will love. Apparently there's a really and good song like, in it. But we'll what, see. what is it? And they were like, you will know, which is the most annoying thing ever. Because it's like, um, and if I don't know. I can't believe you're not excited to watch the latest movie from the director of Shanghai Nights, Wedding Crashers, and Fred Claus. <laughs> Did you direct Fred Claus? Yeah. Holy and fuck. The Judge. Oh, wow. Is Wedding Crashers good? I feel like it was probably fine. Uh, I think Wedding Crashers is retroactively cancelled. Yeah, it should be. The concept is questionable to begin with, but uh, it's fine. It's just, I don't know, it's fine. But that's what we're doing next on No Popcorn. Uh, You know, support your local No Encore show on patreon.com slash no encore. Hopefully this episode sounds okay mixing-wise. We're still figuring it out. Do you have anything else to say, David Higgins? Before we, uh... Do you mention at the top of the show that this is our 20th episode and that we have a Spotify oh, yeah. Sorry. list I, of all episodes? If you've listened this yeah, far, listener... We made it as far as 20. <laughs> this is the 20th episode of No Popcorn. So obviously because it's super sporadic over the course of a year and a half, we've only done 20 episodes. Um, 
it's kind of it might be annoying if you're like oh fuck i actually really like that one uh how do i get more of these episodes together so we have a spotify playlist because you can put podcasts and playlists now it's it's great what technology can do um so when this episode drops we will add this episode into previously arranged by lovely david higgins over here uh, 1 to 19. So it'll be the first 20 episodes of No Popcorn will be available on a singular playlist link, which we will include in the description of the next episode, I presume, because it won't be over this one. And also we will include it in No Encore's Twitter at No Encore Show, my Twitter at Han Rooney Dave. Dave never tweets, but he's at Hegons. I will give you a retweet. A retweet. <laughs> uh, Norma's not on Twitter, to my knowledge. Uh, I'll put it on the gram. I'll do it for the gram. All right, okay, no worries. Um, but yes, we will try our utmost to make this available uh it, it's it's hard to like talk about spotify links on a podcast it just it's a whole big mishmash but i'll try and fire it into this episode link as well so uh thank you for to everyone who does like no popcorn i really do appreciate it and um, we'll do more of these very very soon legit this time thanks stay safe during this pandemic and here is of course global terrorist fire by joy division enjoy bye <laughs> podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. The been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.